Welcome to the Conscious Culture Cafe, the podcast that explores how you can lean into your purpose, live your values, and enhance your social impact through your work. I'm your host, Kathy Miller Perkins. The current pandemic and economic crises are threatening all of us. However, there are opportunities for us within this crisis. We have the chance to change ourselves and our organizations. We can transform and come out of this difficult time stronger and more resilient. And we can learn from some of the transformational movements of the past. My guest today is Mark Lorch. Mark started out as an operator in a major oil refiner facility in the Midwest. He became a union steward and was instrumental in assisting his company in transforming the way they did business. He helped lead a union management partnership to create an empowered workforce in a transformed organization. He is here to share his story about how he grew into his role as a change maker. He talks about the power of a workplace where an adversarial culture was transformed to an empowered, resilient workplace. We have much to learn from Mark as we think about what we can do now to transform and strengthen our organizations for an uncertain future, one that will require the best each of us has to offer. Welcome, Mark. It's so nice to have you with us today. Mark and I go way back, but instead of my telling you about his career, I'm going to ask him to do that. So, Mark, thanks for coming and tell us a little bit about your long and fruitful career. Good afternoon. Great to hear from you. So, back in the uh, early 80s, I hired into uh, one of the uh, oil companies here in the Midwest in a refinery as a refinery operator. Hired in on a brand new unit that had never been ran and was part of the original startup crew on that unit, which was really a great learning experience. They had the new hires paired up with some of the old hands, so I really benefited from learning from the uh, old hands. And also, each shift had a chemical engineer assigned to it, so benefited greatly from that as well. Sounds like a good start. (laughs) It was. I could not have had a better way to start in the refining business and worked with a really great crew. Well, tell me what it was like to be a union steward in those days. If you were a good arguer, tell me about that. How'd that work out for you? How did you argue? What was your style? Well, originally when I started out, first off, I studied the contract and made sure I knew the contract. I also really was tuned in to safe work practices and the general orders around safe work practices and so forth in the refinery. It's just something I felt like I should know well if I was going to be representing folks. So naturally, there would be disagreements about how to do things. There would be disagreements about schedules, which most factory workers know that schedules are like really important to individuals. So a lot of those arguments or grievances would come up about schedules or work practices. And early on, being the good arguer I was, I was sometimes described as uh, the angry young man in my approach. (laughs) (laughs) What's that mean? What, What does that mean? Well, I guess I was a little on the belligerent side and not real politically correct oftentimes, probably use Mm -hmm. some strong language. Mm 
One of my compadres kind of compared me to William Shatner when he was doing the uh, Energizer commercials, and he always had a chip on his shoulder. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Probably not the best approach, but I was a young guy. Yeah. Well, did you think it was an effective approach at that point? It had its moments. It really did. I mean, there are times when raising your voice or using strong language really gets people's attention. And a lot of times they have to listen. And truthfully, sometimes they really don't want to be in that environment where you are very adversarial. So Yeah. So it worked for you and against you in both ways? I would say that's very accurate. There were times when it was very effective and there were also times where it created resistance to my ideas or the point I was trying to get across. Were you aware of that at the time? I could sense that from time to time. And I think you'll remember the story uh, where I was arguing a grievance. And grievances go through steps. And one of those steps, you actually get out to meet with human resources and the department manager in the human resources office to discuss your grievance. And this is really the last step before it goes to arbitration. You don't really like to get to that step. It's called the third step where we were at. But anyway, I had a really strong case for winning this particular grievance. You know, I walked out of the meeting pretty angry, had some very strong words back and forth between myself and the uh, HR manager. Went back to the unit not knowing what the outcome would be. They they have X number of days to get back to you with an answer. A few days later, I get a message through my foreman that they wanted to speak to me out front at Human Resources. I went out and met with the Human Resource Manager. And he says, you know, Mark, you really had a good case here. And my inclination, this is him speaking, since... We were really nose to nose. That was a really ugly meeting. You said a lot of ugly things to me, and I may have said a few ugly things to you. And did he? Had he had he been ugly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a, in a much more politically correct way, yes. <laughs> okay. He said, you know, I was writing up the response to this, and my response was to say, hey, go fish. You guys take it to arbitration. I dare you. And he spelled out what his case for doing that was, which was weak. He knew that. But he also knows that, you know, it costs money for the union to go to that next step. And there's decisions that have to be made before you do that. And it's still a gamble. Anyway, his reaction was, look, instead of doing this, instead of throwing this up the next rung, the next step, he said, I will let you have this win. If you will agree to work on our relationship, me and you, and try to figure out a way to work in a more constructive way. Wow. Yep. That's pretty impressive. It was powerful. It was powerful for me. Nobody had ever shown that much respect to me in an environment like that before. And yeah, I went back to the unit, thought about it for a while, called him up the next day and said, Larry, I'll take you up on that. How are we going to do this? Anyway, From that point on, he and I worked really hard on our relationship and looking at the facts of the cases and 
remarkably, we found ways to solve our problems without the grievance process quite often. Really? Yep. Well, so how did the two of you work? When you said you worked on your relationship, how did you do that? What did you do that made that go forward in a different way? Or was it just that first conversation that just changed everything? Well, one thing he offered was that he and I meet on a monthly basis to discuss issues and to try to get ahead of issues before they became grievances. Okay. You know, I I went back to the uh, business agent before I agreed to that. I thought it sounded like a good idea. And the business agent, he's like, Mark, this is an opportunity. And he said, I suggest you do that. And I think going forward, this is going to help us all. Now, for those people who might not be familiar with union hierarchy, what's the business agent? So the business agent is the, really, he is the guy in charge for that local. Okay. He's the top of the food chain at that local. And at that time, I was just a committeeman. Right. Okay. I was just the steward at that time. So as it turned out, Kathy, one of the things that HR manager and I agreed to work on after the next contract came around was working on uh, shift schedules and then training for operators, which sometime later, you know, that's where you and I. Exactly. That's when I came into the picture. That's right. right. It was a shift schedule thing that came first, which was a huge change for us, but it is the the first time I got involved in a study group to work in hand in hand with management to come up with a new shift proposal. So who chose you? Was that the human resource person that you were working with that chose you for that committee or how did that work? No, the business agent, basically the uh, operations management offered up three people and the business agent offered up three people that represented the uh, operators. I see. Well, that is when I entered the picture because I worked with that group and I saw the group working very well. So maybe behind the scenes, there were things going on that I wasn't aware of. But in the time that I spent with your group, I wouldn't have been able to tell you who was union and who wasn't because of the way you guys work together. How did that happen? Well, now that that effort you and I were involved in was operator training. Oh, okay. All right. Previous to that was the shift schedule thing. Okay, I got it. Yeah. The other two guys on that committee for the uh, shift schedule were also stewards from out in the plant. So we had to work with two supervisors and a manager on these shift schedules. And there was a lot of constructive relationship building during that effort. I know the union was happy with it when it all ended up and the company was happy with it. And it really set the stage for the things you and I were involved with together, which was operator training. Okay. Now, up to that point, before that time, what were the union management relationships like in the plant? Was it adversarial? Was it fairly collegial? What was it like? It was a uh, quiet adversarial relationship. There weren't weren't a tremendous amount of grievances, but there were some that were pretty passionate on pretty passionate topics at times. So you didn't see anything like work stoppages or anything like that. I mean, uh, grievance going to arbitration would be the most significant, but 
there was not a lot of cooperation going on between the two parties up to that point. So this committee, was that the beginning of a change in the relationships then? It sounds like it, it might have been. It was for the operators. I'm sure there were things going on with some of the other unions as well. You know, shift schedules is something that's really dear to people's hearts when you work shift work. Mm, I bet. So it had a lot of profile across the company. And as far as I know, it was a first time where you really had that work group of both parties working together to one end. Oh, good. A lot of challenges. Interesting. It was very challenging. How so? Well, you can get divided on this topic very easily between an eight-hour schedule and a 12-hour schedule, for instance. And we were looking at both. We were looking at a couple of different eight-hour schedules and a couple of different 12-hour schedules. You know, people lined up pretty quickly behind one or the other. And then plant management, the upper management, put a a standard where we had to be able to pass it by two-thirds of majority, which is pretty difficult. That's pretty a high difficult. bar. <laughs> that's a that's a high bar in any group to get a two thirds majority. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, we made it, but we made it by you know getting out and talking to people. Uh, we did several different surveys. We surveyed between eight and twelve first, and then be, okay, if we're going to go twelve, which twelve do you want? There were also some lines drawn there by certain parties, so it was tenuous. But I grew a lot because I had to get out and interface with a lot of people. We had to put on a lot of meetings where they were joint meeting, but, you know, somebody from the union had to get up and speak. And I'd never spoken before groups before I got involved in this stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Challenging. I, I sweated a lot. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Well, so it turned out, that turned out successful, I take it. And at some point in the process, and I don't know what that point was, Mark, you decided to do some more and bigger joint management union partnerships, didn't you? Wasn't there a more formal agreement around that at some point? It came on a little later, but we had an agreement at the next contract to try to tackle operator training in the same way, a joint committee combining operators and management. There were some common people in those two groups between the shift schedule group and the uh, management, which helped because some of us already had relationships built. Didn't have to start from scratch, but part of that activity was uh, hiring a consultant to help us through the process once we realized (laughs) how uh, big a challenge we had in front of us. And that was me. That was you. That was <laughs> That's you. And we met. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, that was, it was an interesting experience for me as well, because like I said a few minutes ago, the group worked well together and I was interested, I still am interested in how you built those relationships. You said a minute ago, it, it was about relationship and I would assume it was about trust. How does how did that come about? What was different from the time that you were the angry young man to the time that you were working jointly in these committees? Well, one of the things in the early stages of that process, we were talking about going out and benchmarking other companies on schedules to see, you know, what other people liked and didn't like about the various different schedules. I was a little hesitant to get 
that deep in research, so to speak. I'd never traveled before, for one thing. That's one thing. But I had a discussion with the business agent about my concerns and misgivings about going down that path. And one of the things he told me, he says, Mark, he says, look, one of the things that could really work to our advantage here is you learning more about how to operate in this environment of working side by side with these managers and supervisors. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole different environment than that on a unit. You know, you're trying to get a unit started up, shut down, or equipment prepared or shut down. It's this whole different environment. But he says, you know, one of the things you ought to think about is if you know what they know, it's to your advantage and it's to all the members' advantages. I kind of took that to heart. It kind of made sense to me. So rather than starting out my relationship with new members of the, the next team, you know, I was motivated to develop a constructive relationship right out of the gate. That's great. Well, it sounds like your business manager was a wise individual. He was. He was. Gave you good advice, it sounds like. Yes. Yep. Well, you talked to me, and we've had a lot of conversations, the two of us, over the years about these things. And one of the things that you have emphasized in our conversations is the importance of interpersonal skills in having influence. I mean, I always describe you, Mark, as one of the best leaders I've ever known, and I truly believe that in all the years that I've been in business. Oh, I do. You're too kind. Well, watching how you were able to influence people was truly amazing for me. And you had exceptional and do still have exceptional interpersonal skills. How'd you develop those? Well, when we got started on the training team, the team that was put together to work with you and and to pursue this training system that we developed there in the refinery, there was a point where they offered me the lead role in implementing that process we that we started. Yeah. And one of the requirements was for me to get involved in their uh, their personal skills program or I'm not going to call it a program, it is a process that the company had and I'm talking company from a more global terms, not just our specific location, but they had a program called increasing human effectiveness and presentation skills or meeting facilitation. Actually, it was meeting facilitation. And so one of the things they told me, and this was the uh, HR manager and the business agent sat me down and said, we're going to offer you this opportunity here. But one of the conditions of that is to get on board with the uh, personal development programs that the company offers. Were you okay with that? Well, I had an opportunity to help develop the training program that or a training program that I had been identifying is a huge gap for an operator from the day I hired in. I had an opportunity to lead that effort or not. I wasn't going to turn down that opportunity because of these training activities that they were asking me to do. Were you skeptical about it or welcomed it? How'd you feel about it? I was not skeptical. I would say I was apprehensive. Okay. Because once again, I was stepping out of my comfort zone. And typically, the people that went through those programs were all staff. So basically, I was thrown into an environment where many times I was the only hourly employee and certainly the only union leader. So right. <laughs> that was 
<laughs> now, by that time, I, I, one thing I overlooked here is after the operator scheduling process, once we got through that and got that new shift schedule approved, they asked me to be the chairman for the operating engineers. So, Oh, really? That's the, the chief steward. I'm not sure I knew that. Well, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's the chief steward. So when you and I met, I was already in that role. Okay. All right. I see. So I reported to the on the union side to the business agent directly at that point. Okay. Who would say you didn't need to improve your personal skills if you're operating at the, those levels? And it was a great benefit to me, I, I would say, but I could never have achieved a lot of the things I achieved without that. Really? Tell me about the program. What was it like? What was it you, how did they help you learn those things? Well, you started out with a uh, five-day training event locked in away from the refinery. And so they sent you off to a retreat environment. This thing was offered to people all across the company. So it wasn't just people from our particular location. It was it was a mix of people from all across the company. And so the this particular event was called Open Systems Workshop. You know, open Systems, you know about Open Systems. It really is all about learning to be more open to new ideas, open to communicating more effectively with others, learning to be an active listener, things like empathic listening. Anyway, five-day workshop, ton of stuff, built into it to get you to a different level in terms of communication, in terms of working together as a team, being able to appreciate your teammates' skills, being able to recognize your own weaknesses and try to draw the, the strengths out of your team to offset the weaknesses. Really a great activity. And yeah, I'm not sure if they're still using that program today or not, but I can say that that five days was a huge growth opportunity for me. And I, I took full advantage of it. After that, did they have other hourly people go through the program or did you, were you the only one who ever went through that program? The only hourly person? For our particular location, it was on the front end of including hourly people. There had been a few hourly people. They were just getting started doing that. It's the same time the company had started their effort to work more towards an empowered work group, an empowered work environment across the whole company. So it fit really well with that. That open systems workshop was developed at our particular location, but it was always open across the whole company. And probably the offshore drilling people had gotten into that a year or two before they started getting the uh, hourly people in the refineries involved in it. So you said this was happening at the same time that they were coming up with an empowered, a push towards an empowered workforce. What does that mean? And what led to that, do you think? Why did they decide to do that? And what was that push? I mean, at that time, employee involvement was a thing, and you can probably date that back to the mid to late 80s. So the company had adopted that as one of their key beliefs. Okay. Belief in people, empowering everyone, and that everyone has the ability to lead in some fashion or form. So That's there's a wonderful. front end of that effort. Yes, it was. And frankly... 
you know, I probably could never have ended up where I was with the company if it hadn't been for that activity. I couldn't have, I probably couldn't have survived if I'd still back at the ammunition plant. <laughs> I don't right, mean, yeah. I, yeah. I would have left. I would have left. Yeah, right. Well, so it was a big culture change, it sounds like, that employee involvement, as I recall in those days, involved complete transformation in a culture. It was stimulating. It was exciting, but it was tough, as I recall. Yeah, we had a lot of discussions about some of the tenets of those efforts back then. For instance, we weren't going to have supervisors anymore. We were going to have coaches, as an example. You know, operators like, look, hey, I just come in. I want to do my job and go home. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to. And you heard me coin this phrase, you know, you had the blue collar mentality where right. what's wrong with me just coming to work and doing my job and going home. So it was difficult at times. And there was a, a huge spectrum of belief that it would work and whether or not it was good for the union workers to get involved. Was this an effort to undercut the union, undermine the union? Yeah, I wondered about that. I wondered if anybody gave you a hard time for your apparent buy-in to this culture and to this process. Did your union buddies accept that? Were they pleased? Were they unhappy with you? Did they ever see you as a sellout, do you think? Oh, I, I had been accused of that, yes, of being a sellout. My response was always, I'm just trying to do what's best for the operators. And, you know, like it or not, this is the path the company is chosen. If, you know, we dig our heels in and say we're not doing it, we're not going to be able to reap the benefits that are out there. There's good and bad with all programs. Most programs, there's good and bad. And so, you know, my response was always, you have to weigh the good with the bad and figure out a path to take. And we're going down this path. And if we get in on the front end of it, we can help influence the structure and influence to what degree we're going to accept responsibility or how we're going to accept it. And were you able to persuade people to your way of thinking about that? I must have done okay because I kept getting reelected. So, <laughs> That's a uh, good sign. <laughs> That's a good measure. I like that metric. <laughs> yeah. Even, even when I took over the uh, leadership of the training process, the guys back in my department continued to elect me as the department chairman. That's really affirming. Yeah. So I must have been doing okay. The other thing that goes hand in hand with this, during the shift, the shift schedule, that effort, I developed relationships all across a refinery with other departments and ended up reaching out as part of the effort to implement the new shift schedule to a lot of people that normally I would never had any interface with. I see. And so I I had rapport and relationships in every department out there. And the other thing, as a chairman of the operators, I also kind of changed the way we chose our leadership and the, what I did was, well, you, you know, in the old days, the chief steward, or chairman of the refinery committee, they took care of every the whole plant. And I, I basically started recruiting people from the different departments to 
tackle specific areas of problems or specific departments and just spread it out. I spread the responsibility out a little more, which also helped me build more relationships. Absolutely. What a wonderful thing to do in terms of relationship building and influence for that matter. Yeah. And and the other thing, people heard me talk a lot about looking down the road. And by that, I mean, you know, building a more long-term strategies and rather than just, you know, feeling good about short-term wins or, or short-term solutions, trying to build more long-term and lasting strategies as part of the, the union involvement. Mm-hmm. I felt really strongly about that. I think that buys you a whole lot of credibility with the workers when they hear you talking about making things better for the long haul. Yes, yes, indeed. So the the company really got its money's worth out of the time that they, the money and effort they put into your training, it sounds like. I think the company and the union both got a lot out of, out of that effort. Yep. And, you know, so once I'd been through open systems, I'm like, guys, I know this stuff's got a bad rap. We got a lot of people that are resistant to these personal skills stuff, but I really want my leadership, the other committees to sign on and get through this stuff and learn more. And if you can't sell it any other way, it's, you know, you need to know what those company people know. So let's get out there and, you know, sign up when they make the offer, take them up on it. And did they? A lot of them did. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. That's great. And once we got into it, the other, you know, there were 10 or 11 unions at that location. Once we got into it, the other unions started doing it as well. I mean, I'm sure that came about because of the business agents talking and promoting it. But, you know, I I think the the workforce benefited a lot from that kind of stuff. So what do you think the impact, and I know we've talked about this before, that there are some measures of impact of the culture change and so forth and the union management partnerships. And you told me about the productivity of the facility. Can you say some more about that for our listeners? Well, the things that I can cite for that are a little farther along in my career where I was working in more of a manufacturing environment. It was in a uh, a bottling plant, a package plant. For the same company? Yeah, was it for yes. the same company? Yeah, same company, okay. different division. So when we would go out and, and look at improving our production, first we found out we weren't doing a really good job of measuring how we were doing. One of my mentors, by this time I was staff, I'd actually made a jump to staff by this time, but taught me a lot about measuring and metrics. And we would go back to once we decided we needed to improve a particular production line or whatever, we, we would get the operators involved in that. We also had Teamsters there, material movers, and we would get the input from them before we started down a path. And... I can't ever remember a major change that we did not get input from the workers. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. And that piece of the picture, I would guess, is such an incredibly important piece of the picture in terms of getting things done, is getting people's input, getting people's involvement, rather than doing top-down kinds of things. Absolutely, because, you know, once you get their buy-in, it just creates a whole different work environment when you make change. And we did some really simple things that you know, even though I was staff, I still felt 
like I was part of the team as an hourly worker. Example, you know, when we started making changes on production and getting the numbers up, we realized we didn't have all the physical environment pieces of the environment that those people were working in that would make it easier for them to achieve our goals. Example, we didn't have work mats down, just the rubber mats that go alongside everybody's workstation or their path. And, you know, it struck me, first off, I'd worked that job. My feet hurt by the end of the day. Yeah, right. And then I realized, you know, when we're making these changes, those people are going to have to make more steps to get what we wanted to accomplish. We bought huge runners of rubber matting so that those folks were walking on rubber instead of concrete. That's great. It's not a huge thing, but it made it made a difference. And the hourly people really appreciated. We bought some mechanized equipment that was not really about more speed or anything, but less effort for the operators, right? Right. You start adding all that stuff up and, and it, it pays you back. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you still have to measure and you have to let everybody see what you're measuring and, and, you know, what your numbers are. But a lot of times just showing folks the numbers, you know, your goal against what you're actually doing, that in itself will motivate folks and, and they'll, they'll work together to get to reach your goal. Oh, that's an interesting observation. So the metrics themselves become motivational. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. Because people, what is it about that, do you think, that makes people more motivated? Well, I really believe people always want to improve. I don't think anybody is ever satisfied just sitting still. People want to improve. And if you set a reasonable goal, you involve them in what the goal is how you get to that goal, set the metric, show them what you're doing now versus where you want to be. They're already bought in because you involved them and you can't replace that in terms of motivating people. I don't think. Right. I agree. And too few people appreciate that, I think, because it takes time to do that. It takes, it slows things down a little bit in the process, doesn't it? Yes. It takes you longer to make the change. But if you're making the right change, it pays off. And the right change is always going to be the one that your folks buy into. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that really says it all in terms of how to make yeah. change and how to have influence, I think. Yeah. Yes. If you go back to what we were talking about earlier, isn't that what the company did when they asked me to get involved in building that shift schedule? Say more. Well, the company... That your buy-in? They got our buy-in. Okay. You know, they knew they wanted to change schedules, but they wanted buy-in. And what did they do? They got operators involved, and they actually made us equals in the process with the company people involved. Then we went out into the plant and got buy-in from, well, first we asked operators, what do you want? We took their input and put it all together, and we tabulated and said, "Here's, here's our results. We asked you guys this question. Here's what you told us. And so I think you can just take that and build that into a lot of the different accomplishments at those two locations over my 30 plus years there. Right. That's great. It was the wisdom of the leadership that was the foundation for that. 
So you mentioned a minute ago that you became staff at some point. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Why that happened? How it happened? What that transition was like for you? Well, I like to say I got snookered into this, but <laughs> so initially when I moved to the new locate, the new division of the company, they were in the self-directed mode. There were very few man. There was a manager. There were no immediate supervisors, but there were hourly coordinators who were essentially doing what a first line supervisor would do, but they were hourly. The individual that was in one of those positions was going on vacation. He had a a long vacation lined up and he, he said, Mark, Hey, would you mind covering for me while I'm gone? And uh, I'll break in, take us about a week and then you work my vacation. And then, you know, you can start breaking my vacation every year. Okay. I'll do that. So long story short, the guy went on vacation, come back, said, I don't want to do that anymore. So (laughs) tag, you're it. I was the coordinator. And shortly after that, maybe a year or so, the, the company took over another company's manufacturing division of the same kind. And they did not like that there were no supervisors. The new management did not Uh, like the fact that there were no staff people on the floor and in the off shifts. And so they kind of offered me and the other coordinator an opportunity to go staff. The first time they offered it to us, we told them no. (laughs) Yeah. They came back a few months later and said, look, if you guys don't want this, we're going to post it out there across the whole company. And we can't guarantee you you're going to get it. But if you want to take it now, it's yours. So basically that's what we did. So anyway, that's how I ended up being staff. It was a pretty big change for me. But at the same time, I still felt like I was one of the guys down there on the line when I walked down on the lines. And uh, it didn't feel like that big a difference for me initially. So people didn't treat you differently. One of the things that I wondered about is whether people gave you a hard time over that move. Just very few, like buying the rubber mats and buying them some new equipment and so forth. I think that bought me a lot of credibility with the folks. You know, I was trying to be fair to everybody. I made the bold statement one time when we were coming up on contract. I said, you know, look, guys, I'm not going to apologize for the wages we make here. We just have to make sure we're earning them, but you're never going to hear me apologize for the wages that we make. And uh, somebody told me later, you know, Mark, when you said that, you really spoke to us all. Oh, that's wonderful. Because they knew that you had their back. Yes. And and I feel like I always did. Yeah. Well, if you didn't, they would have turned on you. So (laughs) you were smart enough to know that, I think. Uh, And plus, like you said, you felt like you were still one of them. Did it change your relationships at all with the hourly workers? There was a few. You know, there were one here or there that it changed, especially when it came to... uh, you know, where I had to step in and, and address some behaviors that were not real good. So that, that happened from time to time. But overall, I, I just always felt like I had a really good rapport with the whole team. That's great. That's terrific. Well, let's see what kind of lessons that we can leave as takeaways for other people. Let's start with those people who might be in that angry young man position. What advice would you give people who feel like that, like that adversarial style is the best style to use? Any comments about that or advice or tips? Yeah, 
I would have to say that you cannot really have as a good constructive relationship with folks when you're in that adversarial role mode. Okay. You can accomplish things, but you can accomplish so much more when you're operating in a constructive mode. And that means you're listening to people, you're not calling names, you're not diminishing their efforts, however they are. I mean, oftentimes you think, oh, the company is doing this to me. Well, right. And so that causes you to get your hackles up. But if you turn around and say, okay, you need to accomplish this, but maybe there's a better way to do it. One of my themes was always trying to be constructive rather than destructive. And if you're the young, angry young man, you're going to be in a destructive mode a lot. Right. If you're that guy that's listening and that is trying to find common ground, you're going to be in a constructive mode. That's great. That common ground issue. That's one of the things, and and you and I both have worked for a long time, and I personally have seen a loss in the ability of groups and individuals to look for common ground. It seems to be harder and harder for people to do that now. So I think that's a really important point that you're making. You know, that HR manager that first kind of got across to me, his idea was, you know, I talked about having those monthly meetings. His idea was to work on the stuff where we did have common ground Ah. and not even bother, not even bother with the stuff where we couldn't find common ground. Oh, that's really interesting. And unless we were forced by either company or union leadership to deal with something where we couldn't find common ground, we always made sure we were being proactive and working on stuff where we could find common ground. Oh, that in itself is priceless advice, I think, for some of the times that we're in in the workplace. Yeah, take that operator training activity. The company and the operators both benefit from that greatly if you can work together on training. Right. It's a no-brainer. You know, better training is going to benefit the company and it's going to benefit the the individual, the operators, the ones on the line. I don't care what you're doing. It's going to benefit you. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you would like to leave as words of wisdom or advice? I'm sure just from the stories you've told, our listeners have gotten a lot out of this. But any last words from you, Mark? For today, last I don't, for I, today. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've been talking too much as it is, Kathy. That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. That's the point. <laughs> well, I thank you so much. You and I have had a long and wonderful professional relationship and friendship over the years. And I personally have learned a great deal from you. So I'm glad to give the listeners an opportunity to do that as well. And vice versa. Well, that's good. Let's keep learning from each other then. (laughs) Yes, I'm in. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Culture Cafe. If you liked what you heard, connect with us at millerconsultants.com. You can access the show notes and receive our free materials. See you next episode.